Thank you, John. I've not got any uh, slides, partly because I wanted to listen to uh, Anna and Ben reflect on what they said, as well as adding in some of my own thoughts on the, the future challenges. And I will pick up on the uh, hints I've been given by both uh, Anna and Ben in the comments I want to make now. What I want to suggest is there are, from my point of view, about seven key challenges for the future, looking at where we've come from and then thinking about the financial context and the political changes that have taken place in the last few weeks. What's striking listening to Anna is if you think back about what has been achieved and there have been uh, weaknesses and areas of shortfall as well as areas of achievement, but the big progress and huge investment, particularly in improving access, bringing down waiting lists and waiting times, the first challenge, I think, is holding on to those gains in a financial context which will be much, much more challenging than the one we've come from because it literally has been seven years of feast and we're probably entering seven years of famine and to be able, therefore, to hold on to 18 weeks for our A&E targets, access to GPs, very short cancer waits, is going to be a very big ask of NHS organisations as they struggle with the QIP agenda. So recognising the massive progress, particularly around access and waiting time reduction, and realising that that has to be a high priority going forward, that we don't slip back on the areas of real achievement while recognising there's a lot more still to be done in some of the areas that Anna spoke about. The second key challenge is going to be the the QIP uh, agenda, the £20 billion or thereabouts that David Nicholson has spoken about on uh, several occasions. And here, I think we need to move the debate on. need to move the debate on from the focus there has been so far on cutting uh, management costs, bureaucracy and quangos. Uh, And that's not to say those issues are unimportant, but we need to move on to the main opportunities for productivity improvement. Eight or nine years ago, Adair Turner was asked by the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, to take a look at the NHS and the reform programme and to advise him as to whether it was on the right track and where the biggest opportunities were in those days for improving efficiency. And Adair Turner said very clearly the biggest opportunities are around core medical decision-making processes, particularly unacceptable variations in clinical practice, in primary care, in secondary care and in the community services. Adair was right then and he's right today because that's where the main focus for finding this £20 billion has to be. The variations we know exist that have been around for as long as the NHS are unacceptable and provide the best opportunities, in our view, for rising to this £20 billion financial challenge. How do we do that? Well, I've been doing a lot of work with PCTs and trusts in the last uh, 12 months or so. And one of the comments I often make when you're sitting down with a board or a top management team is the chief exec of a PCT or indeed of a foundation trust or indeed the finance director, in my experience, uh, rarely, if ever, write a prescription, rarely, if ever, order a diagnostic test, rarely, if ever, refer a patient to hospital or decide how long they should be kept in hospital or decide if it's a day case or the patient should be admitted overnight. And it's a very simple point, but I think it's a very important one that we lose sight of at our peril. Unless we engage the people who make those 
clinical decisions that commit our resources in rising to the quip challenge, we're going to fall a long way short of that £20 billion that David Nicholson has spoken about. How do we do that? I think there are different mechanisms. Service line management is being pursued in many NHS organisations as one route to that. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about budget holding, the successor to practice-based commissioning, as uh, a route within uh, primary care. Uh, I'm sure both hold a huge potential and promise. Uh, The key ingredients of each of them, from my point of view, are, are threefold. We need really good information to support budget holding and service line management, real-time information, uh, and comparative information to enable people to look at how they're doing in relation to similar practices or similar directorates. We need strong incentives to motivate frontline clinical staff to take the necessary action to reduce that variation to bring them up to best practice. And above all, we need strong systems of clinical leadership, including medical leadership, because the people who make those decisions are indeed those frontline clinical teams. And we need GPs to lead budget holding. We need hospital-based specialists to lead service line management because they're the people best placed to understand, and this is a terribly inappropriate metaphor, uh, where the bodies are buried uh, and how to extract them and to uh, move us forward in the right direction. Third key challenge is a lot of the resource that we spend in the NHS is allocated to uh, acute hospitals. Much of that resource relates to people who have long-term conditions, chronic diseases, who are admitted on an unplanned basis as a result of acute exacerbations of their underlying chronic conditions. And typically, these will be people who have three, four or five long-term conditions, the frequent flyers, the intensive users, who uh, give rise to a high proportion of acute sector spending. A typical DGH uh, has around two-thirds of its bed days, which are attributable to uh, unplanned admissions. And a high proportion of that two-thirds is around the needs of people with multiple chronic conditions. So the third challenge is we have to start taking long-term conditions seriously. Uh, The last thing I was involved in when I was uh, working on secondment in the Department of Health was the NHS Improvement Plan 2004, which said very clearly... Chronic diseases have to be given the same priority as access to planned and elective care and the same priority as prevention and public health. Well, frankly, it hasn't happened. The resource that's been available in the seven years of FEAST have not, uh, on the whole, gone into the challenge that long-term conditions uh, represent. So we need to start taking this much more seriously. We've got to start looking at variations in hospital admission from ambulatory care-sensitive conditions, practice by practice, to see how we can reduce those. We've got to work across all levels of the Kaiser Triangle, from self-care at the bottom to end-of-life care at the top. And as part of that, we have to find ways of supporting and empowering patients and service users, whether it's through the expert patient programme, whether it's through the more systematic use of care planning and care plans, or indeed whether it's through personal health budgets where people have the opportunity to control resources themselves and make decisions about the use of services. That leads on to my fourth challenge, which is in looking at long-term conditions and chronic diseases, looking at the £20 billion 
we need to adopt a framework which says it's local systems of care that have to be engaged in that, not just individual NHS organisations deciding what the opportunities for increased uh, productivity are for them. So thinking local systems of care has to be at the heart of the next stage of NHS reform. Don't take my word for this. David Nicholson said back in August last year in his uh, advice to the NHS, a lot of the inefficiencies, a lot of the productivity opportunities arise at the interfaces between NHS organisations. They occur during transitions of care from home into hospital, from hospital back home to nursing home, between health and social care. That's a key area for focus in future. Individual organisations can't do that. They have to work in partnership with other NHS organisations, with social care colleagues, with the independent sector, and, of course, with patients as well. So we have to think about local systems of care much more than we have done in the recent past. And that means looking at opportunities for greater clinical and service uh, integration in future. How do we get... GPs, primary care teams, working much more alongside hospital-based specialists, working alongside colleagues in social care as well. And in emphasising integration, let me be absolutely clear, I'm not advocating organisational integration because you only have to look at other parts of the UK to see that organisational integration doesn't get you where you need to be. The main areas of opportunity are indeed these frontline clinical teams overcoming the professional organisational barriers and boundaries and finding ways of working more closely together for the benefit of patients but also freeing up resources. And this is about learning from best practice in other uh, integrated systems whether in North America or elsewhere. It's also looking close to home. I've been doing a lot of work in the last six, seven years with colleagues down in, in the southwest of England, down in Torbay, and Torbay is an excellent example of an area which has been taking these issues seriously, thinking about how it works as a system of care, focused particularly around the needs of frail older people because its demographic is the demographic for England in six or seven years' time, and by bringing health and social care together, aligned with GP practices... It's seeing a reduction in the use of acute hospital beds. It's seeing much lower emergency admission and readmission rates for the over-65 population than you see in comparable benchmark PCTs and areas. So it can be done, and the work that's taking place there and in some other places I think gives us hope and encouragement that this is indeed part of the way forward. So my fifth challenge is, will it be possible to encourage greater integration, systems of care thinking, in a context where our new government is very much emphasising choice and competition as the way forward? Well, the answer is yes, but we have to take the debate about choice and competition to a different and, I hope, more sophisticated level. Because what we need in future is choice and competition not in a atomistic, fragmented way where we encourage every organisation to look to its own self-interest to attract patients, to attract income and to improve its performance. We need to think about how we can develop choice and competition between clinically integrated systems and groups and organisations. And we can talk about this in discussion because I don't have time to if I do justice to what this might look like in, in practice. 
And I think the problem with the debate about choice and competition is it's been polarised and it's been simplified in a very unhelpful way between those who are strong advocates and those who are strong opponents. And we need to rise above that to say, yes, choice and competition do have an important part to play in the NHS of the future. Uh, but the hard questions are about how you apply choice and competition to get the potential benefits in practice. And it's interesting if you look at some of the recent US uh, commentary on the issues in that country's healthcare system, the major contributions made by Michael Porter and Elizabeth Tysberg in their book and Clayton Christensen and his colleagues in their most recent analysis. What Christensen says is at a time of change of the kind that we're encountering in the NHS, what you need is not just competition, you need disruptive competition. And the disruptive competition comes not through this atomistic, fragmented market where every provider looks to its own self-interest, but through competition between integrated systems that can leverage the benefits internally from integration, but do so because they're challenged by working in a competitive market, knowing that patients and members can vote with their feet. My next uh, challenge, I think I'm on to uh, number, number six now, is how on earth can we do any of these things, or indeed all of these things, at a time, going back to one of my very first point, at a time when management costs are going to be under huge pressure, taking, what is it, about a third out of current management cost spend to be able to hit the targets that both this government and its predecessor set. Let's be in no doubt, QUIP, as David Nicholson has said, is the biggest leadership challenge the NHS has ever faced. I've emphasised particularly the importance of clinical and medical leadership in rising to that challenge through budget holding, through service line management. But we need excellent leadership at all levels within the NHS, from board level down to uh, ward uh, level. And that's why I hope, while management costs are pruned back in line with the political imperatives, NHS organisations locally will continue to invest in the people and the leadership they need. And I'd echo what Ben was saying. I thought the slides that he showed that were most powerful for me were those towards the end around staff engagement and the message that we clearly should take from that because we're only going to make progress there if we have even better leadership within the NHS so that staff don't feel, as it seems they do, from the staff survey results. And we do much better engaging them and getting their expertise into the next stage of reform. So that leads me to my last challenge, and that is a question, really, and I don't have a clear answer to this. And the question is, where will the drivers for performance improvement come from in future? Uh, what prompts that question is the data that Anna showed around what has happened in the last 10 years or so clearly demonstrates the most important contribution to performance improvement looking back has been targets and terror whether we like that or not. Being very clear what's expected of the NHS and using performance management to drive implementation of those targets through the system. Command and control, top-down, if you like, leverage influence over the NHS at a local uh, level. And yet we know our new government wants to place less emphasis on targets and terror in the future, wants to give more focus to health outcomes. 
We also know our new government, I think strong echoes here of Aradazi's National Next Stage Review, is committed to empowering frontline professionals, uh, freeing them up, if you will, from the tyranny of targets and giving them the ability to drive change uh, locally. Not just echoing what Ara said in his national report, but I think there are strong echoes here too of Patricia Hewitt's idea Uh, there being a self-improving NHS where the imperative for performance improvement came bottom-up, not just uh, top-down. Well, we're still working on that, aren't we? We don't yet have a self-improving NHS, which does rely much more on that bottom-up dynamic for change. But clearly the new government believes strongly in professionalism and trusting those frontline clinical teams to bring about change. It also believes in choice and competition. I'm sure we're going to hear a great deal uh, more about that. And yet, if you look at the evaluations that were done by the Audit Commission, and indeed by the Healthcare Commission with the Audit Commission, what has been the impact of Choice Payment by Results Foundation Trust ISTCs, their argument in their review was not a great deal at the point they undertook that. That was relatively early in the evolution of the current iteration of the NHS market, but it gives us pause for thought. So, given all of this, where are the big drivers for change and improvement are going to come from. Less emphasis on targets and terror, more emphasis on empowering frontline professionals, more emphasis on choice and competition. But not only in the last decade, in the previous decade with the internal market, choice and competition didn't really deliver on the high hopes and expectations that were set for it. So what are the other levers and incentives that will be used to move us into the next stage of reform And is the government going to be able to hold the line around the current position in relation to targets uh, and terror in particular? Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Chris.